Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. What's going on, Jackson? Nothing much, Chris. Um, you know, as you know, we just had the fall back, so um, it's getting dark early outside, and it's getting light too early in the morning now, so um, my pets, their clock is all off. Uh, but yeah, that's just how it's going. I, I like for our intros to have like, you know, what time of year is it? You know, so people can I appreciate know. that. So it's either a Braves win or it's daylight savings time. Well, thank but, goodness yeah, the Braves no, wins all... are over. <laughs> yeah, for now. <laughs> no, um, but good. today's today's guest is uh, Sam Rubin. He was the chief sustainability officer and co-founder of Mighty Buildings. And they are a construction technology company that is uh, 3D printed homes. Right now, they're focusing the residential market. They're kind of really trying to tackle this idea of uh, the labor shortage crisis and the housing crisis that we sort of face as a, as a country. Um, and it was really cool to hear about the technology they use. What would you think? This was um, an episode that is jam-packed with information. Um, I've been waiting for us to have a 3D printing episode for a long time, and I'm glad that we finally have one. Um, This one's really cool. Mighty Buildings, um, you know, I think the quote that's going to come out of this episode is disruption through collaboration. Um, I think they truly did it the right way by, um, you know, working with the regulatory and um, the regulatory bodies to make sure that what they were doing, um, you know, was going to be okay with them before really, you know, starting down this road. Um, And also, you know, they've created their own material for 3D printing. I know a lot of people in construction, they hear 3D printing and they're like, well, what are you printing? Is it just all plastic? Well, they've got their own material. Um, and what they're doing is super cool. They've got a great YouTube page, which we mentioned. Um, so, you know, I think people are really going to enjoy this one. Yeah, it was cool to hear about how they do a lot of, um, it's all offsite. They print these offsite, they drop them, um, wherever the home is going to be located. And, and you're right, working with those regulatory bodies definitely seem to help, uh, at least in their growth. And instead of sort of pushing them aside, but embracing them to really try to make it a better solution. So it was a cool conversation. Uh, Sam was a great guest. Like you said, there's a lot of information in this one. So hope you get to listen to it, enjoy and check back for more. Welcome back for another episode of the AEC Disruptors. Today, our guest is Sam Rubin. He's the Chief Sustainability Officer and Co-Founder of Mighty Buildings. How's it going, Sam? It's going well. It's uh, it's a privilege to be here with you guys today. Absolutely. We're excited to hear about what you all do. So to kind of kick us off, we always like to get kind of a background into our guests. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about who you are and and then more importantly, tell us who Mighty Buildings is and really what inspired you to co-found that company? Yeah, so it's it's kind of funny me being on a uh, AC broadcast since it's not really an industry I ever ever thought I was going to be in. Um, kind of coming out, my undergrad is poli sci econ. Thought I was going to be a lawyer for years. Um, ended up uh, working with an interfaith peace building for for the second half of my twenties, which was a really amazing experience. Then when it was time to to actually go back to grad school, I was like. Well, it was like 2012 and there was a glut of unemployed lawyers. So I'm like, maybe law school isn't where I want to be. So instead decided to get a dual MBA MBA. So public as well as business administration uh, at Presidio Graduate School, which is one of the first programs in the world to center the entire curriculum around systems thinking and sustainability. And so coming out there, decided to t- take a hand and try my hand at running a full service brand strategy design firm with a, a former colleague from uh, who worked before grad school. It was awesome. Spent a little too much time building websites um, for, for my liking and not enough on sustainability. So leaned into a side gig where that I'd started doing sustainability coaching consulting and really made that my primary. So working with everyone from wineries and breweries to municipal utility districts, to large nonprofits, to small businesses, to not, uh, public schools, private schools, like really the whole gamut, uh, helping them identify opportunities for reducing their impact in terms of waste, water, energy, transportation. And so everything from 
building envelope, HVAC systems, lighting. I mean, I I'd be the guy on the uh, ladder sticking my head up into the drop ceiling with my camera trying to figure out what exactly what kind of heat pump is that um, so that I could probably calculate the actual demand anyway. It got complex, but I learned a lot about building systems uh, at the same time and then would also, most importantly, help whoever I was working with figure out what is the business case for making these sustainability improvements. Um, and so really, so that they can make that case up to the to their c-suite to hopefully actually implement them and then at the end i'd be like so here's the business case oh and by the way there's also this huge brand value add you're saving all this water all this energy all this so by the time i brought that in even if they were someone who completely hated the idea of sustainability already won them over with the business with the business case and so really that idea of sustainability being maximizing impact while balancing the needs of people planet and profit because um, you can be the greenest most socially conscious company in the world but if you're not making any money you're not going to have any impact because you're not going to exist. So it's really about how do you how do you find that that balance so you can really maximize that. So I was doing that, and um, then a uh, former classmate of mine who was at the time was working at Indiegogo posted on one of our uh, Facebook pages that she, so uh, got some founders she was where had worked with previously were looking for someone to help with sustainability, market research, and compliance. And uh, and this is this is the point when everyone realizes just how big a nerd I am. Uh, I fell in love with 3D printing when I realized that Star Trek replicators were just atomic level added manufacturing with energy modulation. So, <laughs> and so my capstone at, and, and at Presidio had been, me and my team had taken, uh, made a business plan to take clean, virgin, uncontaminated hospital waste and convert it into 3D printer filament. So, uh, and great idea, still a good idea. It wasn't much of a polypropylene uh, market for filament at that time, um, still really isn't. And unfortunately, that was what the majority of it was. So we all kind of went our separate ways, but it's something that, that stuck with me. And so when my, my former classmate posted this, I, uh, I was like, cool. I actually recommended two people who'd been advisors on our project, uh, but, in the, but it also made a point to get connected. And that's when I connected with, uh, met my CEO and co-founder Slava. Um, and at the time he was running a venture firm out of Singapore and our CTO and other co-founder, Dimitri and him had previously done a 3D printing pen which was one of the first in the world that was, you could print directly onto your hand uh, because it didn't mm. use heat, it used light to cure. So that meant the ink itself was actually room temperature. So there wasn't a risk of burning yourself or anything. Very similar to what happens when you go to the dentist. And so after having success with that and getting it in Best Buy and other big box stores, they'd been thinking about well, what big problem can, what be like big problem can we solve with this? And at the time, as I mentioned, Slava was in Singapore. So we'd be traveling back and forth between here and there and going from Singapore, which has some of the most advanced construction in the world to California, where we're still building using 100, 200 year old techniques. It was just like, ding, it's like, there's gotta be a better way. And so looking at that, and then that caused us to take a deeper, caused them to take a deeper dive into, well, let's look at construction. And that's when we realized, oh, it really is building using 100, 200 year old techniques and has not embraced cutting edge technology. And as a result is facing massive inefficiencies, which are leaving over $1.7 trillion on the table in unmet revenue, unrealized revenue every year. And which is driving a housing scarcity issue, which is gonna impact one in three urban dwellers or over 1.6 billion people by 2025. So huge opportunity. So they shared the vision with me for taking this nascent light-based 3D printing technology that was different than anything the construction market's ever seen before. Because most 3D printing construction, even now, still is focused on concrete when it's effectively just pouring formwork differently. It's not even truly printing. That's a whole other story. Um, but, and shared it with me, I'm like, I get it. It makes sense. And because the goal is to really figure out how do, how do we unlock productivity in the construction sector to address the housing affordability crisis while also addressing the climate implications of all that additional construction given that 40% of global emissions are tied to the built environment, 30% from energy use of buildings, so meaning we need much more energy efficient structures, another 10, 11% that's tied to the actual construction of the buildings themselves. And so really understanding what might it look like to bring 21st century technology in to solve these, this dual crisis of housing and climate that really is a 21st century crisis. And so I, I was hooked, they shared it with me. Um, I'm like, where do I sign? So. It's been, that was a uh, summer 2017 and we uh, incorporated August 2017 and then spent our first three years in, in stealth mode, avoiding publicity, avoiding really anyone talking about us at all, other than some targeted uh, social media marketing to line up our first customers because we really wanted to focus on making sure we got the technology right and that we we're in a position when we did come out of stealth mode to really deliver on the promise 
of what we were saying because we've seen so many good ideas that got completely derailed because it's got too much hype too soon. And so we're being held to promises they weren't ready to keep. So we wanted to make sure we really avoided that. And at the same time, recognizing that building codes are written in blood. I mean, they, there's a reason the construction industry is conservative. Um, and it's, it's a sad fact that most of those codes exist because things went wrong, people got hurt, people died. And so for us, it was so important that we were addressing that from the beginning. So a lot of that, those three years was really spent on the regulatory side as well, working closely with uh, Underwriters Laboratories, UL, some of the world's oldest and largest uh, third-party safety certifying agencies to figure out what does it look like to demonstrate code compliance and safety of this incredibly novel technology. And as a result, what came out of that is actually the world's first standard for 3D printed construction, UL 3401, which has since been added as the basis of an adopt of adoptable appendix AW in the International Residential Code. So a lot of our work has really been helping bring 3D printing into the code itself because, I mean, obviously I'm bullish and biased, but I really do think 3D printing has more promise than any other technology to solve the dual crisis of housing and climate. And so there's this huge opportunity to bring it in, but we need standards, we need codes, we need a way to demonstrate that's safe. And so that's something we worked on extensively while we were still in stealth mode, as well as working with the state of California's Housing and Community Development Department which oversees the factory built housing program, which is where um, our, our, um, we operate because we're doing 3D printing, but we're doing it as uh, prefabrication. So we're doing it in our facility and then delivering uh, to that site. You can actually see one of our units behind me. This is uh, one of our first units we delivered down to San Diego. So this is a, a two modules, so two volumetric modules. And our initial ones like this one are actually, they're kind of hybrid. So you've got 3D print curve, which you can't see here is on the other side of the building, uh, married to a, a traditional steel frame box. So similar to kind of the, like the Tesla Roadster insofar as bringing cutting edge technology, mashing it together with traditional existing technology to create something new. And then we now have a new product line, our Mighty House, uh, which is going to be um, actually with the first of which has already been approved by the state of California and which we have a few other models being approved. And that's going to be one primary basis for two developments we're doing next year in Coachella Valley, which will be the world's first 3D printed zero net energy communities. And so I was going to say, you know, you mentioned <laughs> two crises. Um, it was climate and housing, but mm -hmm. another crisis that I know you're well aware of in the construction industry is labor. Yep. And that goes for both the people who are actually installing the work as well as the people who are in the office. So it seems like it gets those three um, right there. Yeah, and then for us, it's really about, it's not about replacing labor because uh, we are bringing auto, a lot of automation into, into the production system. I mean, our goal is to auto, automate roughly 80% of the production process. Uh, but it's really to address, as you know, that there's a lack of labor. I mean, I think right now I'd have to go look at the latest numbers, but last time I checked, there's between 300 and 400,000 construction jobs open in America that no one's taking. And so we're not going to build all the housing we need if, if we don't have the people to do it, unless we find a better way to build. And so by bringing 3D printing in, by bringing robotics in, we're able to really address that labor shortage while also actually at the end of the day creating more work by increasing overall productivity, but it's safer, easier work on a per unit basis. And the goal by combining that with uh, 3D printing and with this cutting edge technology is to actually hopefully attract a new generation of workers back into the industry. Because I mean, here in California, I think the average age of a general contractor is mid upper fifties, um, because in 2008, most, most people left the industry and those who came back, they're, they're retiring and they're not being replaced. And so people who used to go into construction are becoming, um, joining the gig economy, becoming programmers. And we really want to help them see themselves back in uh, the construction industry and see a, a rich future in it for them. So walk us through a little bit. You know, we understand that Mighty Buildings is looking to create these 3D printed, right now it's residential, and we could talk a little bit about that. But, you know, from sort of inception of like, I had this idea of kind of what I wanted. You know, what does the life cycle of this project look like um, from the time we contact you or whoever it is you know, mm -hmm. is it in a factory? Is it what's 3D print? Like, how does all that work? Yeah, great question. So right now, so in terms of design, right now we're, we're offering our own designs um, because again, we're new, young, we're new, but longer term, the goal is to be able to take third-party designs and convert them into 3D printable systems, uh, particularly for larger builder, for builders and developers who wanted to deploy these units at scale. Because mm -hmm. that, that's, that's kind of, that's where we're headed. I mean, that's always been that division is to be that tool for industry that can unlock that productivity in a sustainable way. And like so these first- customization. Exactly. Um, really kind of taking the idea of prefab and then using 3D printing and robotics to really unlock its promise because prefab is not new. I mean, prefab, I mean, I think the first prefab unit in America 
was a fishing hut that came over from England on a boat in like the 1700s. And, but every time that prefab starts to get big, like the Sears kit houses in the 20s and 30s, the um, Blue Homes, Michelle Kaufman designs getting this past this century. Whenever there's then a crisis like the depression or the great recession, it collapses because you're generally just taking traditional construction and putting a roof over it. So you're dealing with fixed operating costs because you're dealing with generally hundreds of thousands, if not million square feet of production floor. And you're dealing with fixed over labor costs because you've got a lot of workers. So with what we're doing, we're able to set up in a much smaller footprint. We have a new micro factory concept then in a 50 by 50 square foot uh, footprint, we can actually generate about hundred units a year. And so that allows us to, there's a higher demand in market to be able to scale up by just adding additional production cells. Um, and also because we're primarily using robotics and machine and uh, printers, we can actually scale up or down production and just shut, shut those cells down if demand craters, right? And so it's a lot easier to, to kind of ride those, uh, the cyclical nature of the industry. Although with the current crisis, that cyclical nature may be going. But back to your actual question. So um, if you come, you come to our website, so we've been up to this point, we've been serving uh, BTC customers with uh, accessory dwelling units, as well as single family homes. You can see, you see our designs, you reach out to us, let us know. At this point, we're, as I mentioned, we're starting to uh, really embrace our lo that longer term vision of kind of scale and impact at scale. Yeah, you come check it out, put a deposit down. Our team goes through a compliance port fee, uh, compliance uh, study check and a feasibility study to determine the, whether the units work there. And if it's for builders, developers, kind of looking at the local codes, understanding what that's gonna look like if they have land, if they don't have land, we also have a real estate investment vehicle that we're able to uh, deploy for, for larger projects uh, potentially. And so, and then we work with, uh, we've got a set number of finishes. So it's not quite uh, Henry Ford's any color you want as long as it's black, but it's also not what you, truly true custom. So as you say, mass customization, there's, there's options to pick and choose. And then we go through the compliance process. And once the permits are in hand, with uh, these mod, like the mods you see behind me, we're able to go from blank slate to installed in a month with our new Mighty House system, because that's a panelized system. It's looking at probably uh, six to eight weeks, but still significant time savings over traditional construction. Um, and with uh, incredibly high quality finishes that have been tested to the highest of standards, part of the reason we chose California as our initial market is the stringent building code here. Um, and so, yeah, and so we, we also handle full turnkey experience for B2C customers, and then we work closely with our builder developers to understand where it makes sense to leverage our teams, where they've got existing contractors to use, and really work through the relationship in a way that's going to make sense. I always wonder about, like, what materials are being used. Yep. So, like, when I was in high school, that's, like, when I, I don't know if this is true, but it felt, that's when it felt like 3D printing was starting to really become popular. And it was just like this hot plastic that was used to make these little trinkets that we would make on Inventor. And we thought it was the coolest thing ever. Oh yeah, little, little keychains, or, or if you're really good, maybe some uh, interlocking uh, gears or something. <laughs> yeah, or maybe like a little cube. Uh, yeah. But anyways, um, so I read that uh, on the website that you all invented a material and it's called the light stone material. So could you go into, um, you know, what that is exactly yeah. and its benefits. Certainly. So lightstone material is, it's, it's pretty apt descriptor. It's effectively a UV curable non-silico synthetic stone. So the material itself is uh, belongs to a class of materials called thermal set composites, uh, which have been used in construction at least since the 1960s. Um, a lot of people are familiar with Corian, which is a material that's been used for countertops and claddings. Uh, it's made by DuPont. So same class, but what we've done is we've been able to purpose design the formulation to be 3D printed. And so that means we can design it for fire resistance. We've designed it for fire resistance. We've designed it for strength, for impact resistance, weathering, all these different elements that are key to being used as the exterior wall system, which is the, what we're, the use case that we're using the 3D printed portion for in our new, uh, new Mighty Home. And then in the future, we'll be moving into multi-story with townhouses and eventually uh, low-rise apartment buildings as we begin to dense, uh, address density. But so, it's got a similar strength, our new fiber reinforced version of it has a similar strength profile to reinforced concrete, but four times less weight, four times better insulation. And importantly, even though it's that strong, it's still soft enough that we can mill it with CNC heads that are normally used for metals like aluminum and copper. So that means that we can leave the raw print, which some people really like, we can mill it so it's like a smooth stone-like finish, or, and we haven't had a chance to do this yet, but there's no reason we couldn't make it look like brickwork, make it look like siding, or make it look like something no one's ever seen before. 
And because it's also the material itself is UV curable, so we hit it with the light as soon as it comes out of the extruder, we're able to print in different shapes, different forms, um, so we can match existing aesthetics or introduce whole new design possibilities into the industry really without much, much difference. And so that's one of the really ex things that excites me about it is that we're one of the few that's not using concrete. Um, so we're, we're, and that's, that's important because again, 3D printing in concrete at this point is largely just printing formwork because you still have to add rebar. You still have to pour concrete, additional concrete into the interior of what you've printed in order to meet code because that's the way the codes are currently written. And so with what we're doing, we're able to, uh, to do it differently because we're coming at it from a completely different perspective. And also because we're doing prefab, we're able to control, have much higher uh, environmental quality controls. And with the, mill, the fact that we can mill it, we can actually mill incredible sub-millimeter tolerances. And so it really opens up possibilities that you really can't do with any other material. Yeah, and forgive me if you already said this, but I feel like uh, that material probably has a lot less embodied carbon than, well, so uh, it, 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 it gets complicated. Um, okay. where, where, where we are right now, we're, we're kind of like an electric vehicle um, because it is still polymeric. So there, there is still uh, some polymer, although our new material does have a 50% improvement over our initial material. But we've committed to being carbon neutral without offsets by 2028. So 22 years ahead of the broader industry, because the, the reality is we've got five to 10 years to change everything. Um, if we really want humanity to thrive. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that we're taking a stand to, be, to show the industry that's possible and not just that's possible, but that we, can, we have a tool that they can use um, because we don't have time for people to start from scratch and start inventing, like start over. Like it's really about how do we accelerate the use of as many uh, solutions as possible? Because it really is all solutions on deck at this point, both in terms of the housing crisis, but then also the climate implications of all that additional housing. And so that's, yeah, that's an area that we've looked at from the beginning. Um, and we've also looked at end of life. So currently we can recycle our material by grinding it up and reusing it as filler, but we're actively looking at how do we continue to improve that formulation so that we can hopefully achieve true circularity. So we've been looking at things like advances in the uh, wind turbine blade space where they've developed new technologies for separating fibers from the composites that those are made from and then returning the composites back to a, their original resin form. And so we're also looking at what might it look like to incorporate carbon sequestration directly into our materials through the incorporation of uh, synthetic limestone created from CO2 or biochar or other materials that uh, sequester carbon and then that we're able to deploy into the, to improve our energy efficiency, which is already really exceeds California's stringent uh, green building standards and Title 24 standards, and to go even further there, but then to also really turn our construct our units into, into carbon sinks. Because at the end of the day, we think it's imperative that the construction industry go from being a driver of the crisis to a solution. We think there's, there's an opportunity for once for, uh, for the construction sector to be the good guys in terms of the environment. That's something I was curious about. You know, we talk about the net zero goal. Is that is that for the production side? Like you as an organization want to be net zero on the production side, or you want to be able to produce a house that then also maintains net zero with whether it be both. through solar energy and both yeah so where we are right now is that a lot of the savings we're able to capture is from the waste we don't create in the first place um, because that's one of the really nice things about 3d printing is that you print exactly what you need so we're eliminating on a 1200 square foot building about three tons of carbon per unit uh, just from the waste we're not creating it because i think most buildings you end up the last number i saw was about four to five pounds per square foot goes to landfill um, in a traditional build and we're basically eliminating that completely. Additionally, because of the superior energy efficiency that we're delivering, we're able to bring down the cost of incorporating renewables and storage on site to allow the units to be zero net energy. So that means over the course of the year that they generate as much or more than they pull from the grid um, over the course of a, of a 12 month period. And so that's one of the things we're able to deliver right now. And then as we continue to move down our roadmap, we're not, it's that, taking that, but then also adding the fact that we're eliminating and the embodied carbon in, the, in all the materials, both the printed materials and also identifying the right partners uh, who are bringing solutions to the market for the portions that we don't print and that we won't print. Um, so, and that means opportunities to incorporate lower, lower carbon negative concrete. And, and when we look at this as we're actually looking at, not just at the single house level, like the product level, but at the whole community level. So because there's huge opportunities to leverage when you're doing an entire community, you've just got some bigger levers. So you can talk about looking, well, what's it look like to do permeable uh, carbon negative concrete? What's it look like to do native plants that are drought resistant? 
community scale solar and storage. So all of a sudden you're doing able to use saltwater flow batteries instead of high cost uh, lithium ion. And so it brings new opportunities for making it cost effective to do sustainability at scale. And so that's something that we, we've baked in. And it's, so it's the communities, it's the building units, but then it's also our operations. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. That's something I was curious about because, you know, I think when we last talked, I mentioned that we had a guest on that we talked about hemp as a building material and mm -hmm. how great a product it was. So I'm curious, um, you know, we say that this product can replace concrete, but do you also look at how it can serve as an enhancement to other materials, whether it be how can it enhance the use of concrete or hemp or whatever it may be? Yeah, so somewhat, but, and and, and before I get to that, actually, what we're using Armatil for is not to replace concrete. What we're using our material for is to replace the 12 layers that make up a wall uh, because yep. we're able to have a, print, a printed, printed from one that is your exterior finish, interior finish, air, water, fire, thermal, vapor barrier. On, it's a bit kind of like a, st uh, a structurally insulated panel on steroids um, where it's, you're really getting a full wall solution. That said, one of the really exciting, where we've been looking at it and when we look at our material, we look at it less as an additive to other materials, but we do know, um, and our products thus far are great examples, our material plays really well with others. Um, so it's it's there it, where it makes sense to use to to use three D printing. We definitely do. Where it doesn't, we are have no problem leveraging existing uh, materials and existing technologies because a lot of times there's a reason we use them in the first place in the industry. And so that's one of the nice things about it is it does play well with traditional materials and can easily be combined with them in terms of bringing together uh, the units and bringing together uh, developments. So that's one of the things that we're really excited about. And in terms of hemp. Uh, actually just recently connected with a company that's doing some really cool stuff in turning hemp into plastic additives. Not just uh, using hemp as like hempcrete or um, mineral wool and things like that, but actually using it as an additive into the uh, hemp supply, into the plastic supply chain, begin displacing some of the uh, fillers and other products. I think that would be interesting. Yeah, I know that was a pretty compelling talk, but so I guess in a way, if you all, I mean, we're talking about your modular unit, but within that there's a modular panel. So, you know, you perfecting the panel, it really could scale up from there, mm -hmm. uh, depending on what that design looks like. Exactly. And that's why so far we started with 350 square foot studio, then we had a 700 square foot, one to two bedroom. Now we're moving as big as a 1440 square foot, three bedroom, two bath with our new panel systems that get stood up on site. And then with this new multi-story design system, we're looking at 1800 to 2000 square feet, two, three story single family homes or townhouse configurations to be able to move into that multifamily. And then I said, beyond that into low rise apartment buildings. And so there's definitely a lot of opportunities. And Again, we're doing the we're doing 3D print panels for the exterior wall systems of our new product, but we're still using traditional cassettes for like the floors and ceilings. And so, but that, that said, we're also stepping outside of the uh, tr some of the traditional uh, supply chains as we look to like things like like H steel and use be able to use recycled metals and other opportunities there to reduce our carbon, but also to avoid some of the volatility we've seen in in, in the lumber market and other uh, other markets tied to that. What is the um, what are the MEP components look like in one of these? Yeah, so as we've looked at prefab, we've kind of really been thinking about what industries do prefab really well, and one of the ones uh, that happens to be hospitality, hospitals, shipbuilding, and one of the things that all three of them do is they use prefabricated bathroom units. So rather than spend the eight hundred hours and running wire like uh, plumbing and wires and everything everywhere. We identified companies that are already already working that supply chain, have optimized processes that minimize their waste, and that allows us to then, instead of spending 800, 800 hours building a bathroom, install it in two hours. And that also means that we can consolidate our wet walls into a single wall. So we've got, by placing the kitchen on the other side of the ba that bathroom wall, it really allows us to consolidate all of that into so we end up with a single utility out uh, spot that we can really take advantage of. And then in terms of the wiring and everything, for now, we are gonna be using, on the initial version of our new uh, my panel system, we are gonna be using a gypsum board with furring to be able to run wires behind that. 
But where we're going, and this is again, where 3D printing gets really exciting, is that with BIM, there's no like there's no reason we shouldn't we can't print the chaseways. We just have to get go through additional testing and certification uh, so that eventually we can get to the point where each panel has the uh, specific chaseways already printed into it. I mean, we may even get to the point as they do in uh, shipbuilding where we're able to pre-harness everything to truly get it to be plug and play. And if I'm really looking to the future and really thinking about what 3D printing can do, I get excited for like 10 years from now when we can actually just print the circuitry into the wall. But that's that's a little more that's that that's doable, but not at scale, and we're not doing it yet. But that's like when I start thinking about where this can go, that like the possibilities are pretty amazing. Um, and so that's that's one of the things that I get because if you can do that right, then you can all of a sudden you stand it up, connect it, and it it's it's you're good to, good to go immediately. So and that's really kind of where where we're headed. Um, may not may take a while to get there, but. Yeah, and you can certainly 3D print domestic water pipes and sanitary pipes as well, I'm sure. Well, I mean, it's just as long as you got the right certifications. Yeah. And as long as you can dem <laughs> demonstrate it. I mean, it's in theory, like there's no reason we couldn't print pipes. So I guess there, there's, that's interesting because, you know, you talked about that you are UL certified, you are working mm -hmm. with those governing bodies. I mean, there is a huge regulatory beast that we have to deal with in this industry. We talked about, you know, why... Uh, codes exist. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about how far can we push BIM and you always kind of come back to, we print these drawings for a code official and we have, you know, that layer of code to deal with. So what is some steps that you all at Mighty Buildings are doing to sort of help nudge perhaps those regulatory bodies in this direction? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the big things about Mighty Buildings is that we believe in disruption, but we believe in disruption through collaboration. Like, and I've kind of spoken to that a bit with our using like our traditional materials and where we're incorporating those, but that's also the case on the regulatory side. So even though we knew we weren't going to be delivering units till 2020, we started off in 2019 and 2018 meeting with building officials, understanding what are their pain points, coming, expressing what we are, what we saw, what we were already planning to do to meet the different codes. And then asking, our, our only ask was, what are we missing? What do you see that we don't? Um, and really approaching uh, the whole regulatory environment with humility um, because of the nature of why those codes exist. So it's not, we're not trying to, we didn't want to come in like an Uber or one of these uh, kind of other startups that's kind of given tech a bad name in the regulatory space and be like, hey, we're just doing this. We don't care. It's like, no, we're doing this and we want to do it right. What, what, are, we, what are we missing? Uh, and so that was part of it is building those relationships, but then also doing things like I'm the chair of the F4207 of seven subsection for ASTM, which is uh, their subsection working on the, on standards for the application of added manufacturing to construction. My uh, COO, Alex, is involved with ISO ASTM's Joint Group 80, which is doing the same thing, but as a joint effort between ISO and ASTM. And those are two of the, like the world's two largest uh, standards making bodies. And so a lot of that work is, is engaging with the, uh, the regulatory environment and meeting them where they're at. And part of that means showing up. I mean, I'm, I'm leading a subsection because I was the only construction guy in the room. Um, it, all, it also didn't hurt that I just blown their minds by showing them a picture, what, a video of what we're doing uh, to some of the world's leading atom manufacturing experts. Like, uh, we've got a great video. It's from like when we first started, when we we're still on a tabletop printer, where it just shows us printing one little column, another little column, and then layers back and forth with no sag and instantaneous curing. And literally, you could hear a pin drop after I showed the video. And then someone just raises their hand like, can you play that again? And this, like, that's when I was like, okay, we really are onto something because these literally are some of the world's leading experts in this, in the, in what added manufacturing can be, and we just blew their mind. Um, oh, yeah. And so, part of it's being, and oftentimes we're the only sustainability three D and three D printing people in the construction space in those conversations. And in the added manufacturing space, we're usually one of the, some of the only people from construction and uh, sustainability in those rooms. And part of it's being in the right in the rooms and being willing to go meet them where they are. You do have a very strong YouTube page. Um, I watched one this morning where they were placing the house and they had the, you know, the giant crane and, you know, you put the two um, components together and like, you know, fuse them. And I thought I was like, man, this is so cool. And also whoever your interior design person is top notch. Oh, we've got some amazing, yeah, we've got some amazing designers on our, on our team. Like, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, I've got the easy job. A lot, a lot of what I do, my job is to, is to be out here talking about it and, and finding those partnerships and finding the right people that we want to be in the room with. But we have an incredible team. I mean, I already talked about our C, CEO Slava, our, our CTO Dimitri, 
both both brilliant and, there, and then our CEO, uh, CEO Alex was all um, also one of our the other co-founder just like the four of us come from very different backgrounds but all kind of and none of us came from construction which I think is part of why we get to do what we do is that we didn't realize we weren't supposed to and so oh, yeah. I, yeah and so and then but then behind under like supporting us and really doing all the work is we got amazing team of material scientists, architects, engineers, uh, entitlements professionals, uh, sales like sales team, marketing like incredible incredible team that I'm incredible so grateful for because because uh, without them like we, we wouldn't be anywhere close to where we are so it's really really awesome to have such a such a wonderful team to work with. Well, I appreciate the approach too because I mean we I have always thought that those that would disrupt our industry weren't in the industry. I mean, they, there's a certain level of baggage perhaps that's within the industry or just a status quo. Um, but what I do appreciate is we've seen others, we won't name them, but we've seen others come into the industry to say, hey, we're just going to, you guys are doing it wrong. We're going to do it different and they're no longer around. So yeah. I appreciate you all coming in and saying like, we have this great idea, but we want to listen to, you know, your pain points, how we can help you. So it doesn't start off adversarial from the beginning. Yeah, and then that's where that that notion of collaboration really comes in. I mean, because the simple fact is, like, yes, construction has embraced new ways of doing things, but it doesn't mean that all, all the way that things are, the ways, all the ways that things are currently done are wrong. Like, there's some people who have incredible experience, and there and some things they're done. There's a very very good reason for it, um, and yeah. so the, where it makes sense to reinvent the wheel, awesome. Where it doesn't, let's figure out what is best in class and let's make sure we're using it. Um, and it's and it's really about yeah, being being humble and. One of our big things that we like doing as a company is uh, identifying what are the unknown unknowns like that, that are out there. What is it that we don't know? Don't know that we don't know, so that we can really because like, and that's where this kind of this idea of taking a systems view really comes into play, and really looking at not just this problem like what's right in front of you, but also realizing well what's what's over here and what's behind it, what's on the other side, trying to get as much of a picture as possible because then you can figure out well if I do something here, what are the impacts over there going to be. And are they going to be good? Or are they going to be bad? And if they're going to be good, how do I amplify it? And what are, where are those opportunities for amplifying impact? And where's the, are there opportunities for avoiding unintended consequences that might actually, because something might seem like a great idea. And then five years down the line, you realize, oh, but there's all these other impacts you didn't even think about that are all of a sudden coming back to bite you. And so really taking that approach and that, and it requires being humble and it requires being willing to admit, I don't know, and, but I want to learn. And that's, and that's really, I think, one of the things that we've done differently is that, and part of that is that we've, that's just kind of how all of us are wired as founders in terms of really wanting to understand and wanting to learn. Um, but then also that's something that I was able to bring to the team, having an, a background in public administration and really be, and be, being able to speak the language of the public sector, as well as the private sector, as well as the nonprofit sector. And be able, because you frame it one way for, say if you're talking to investors or talking to a builder, you frame it a completely different way if you're talking to that code official and understanding where their perspective is coming from and then be able to speak to those concerns before they even ask is something that has bought us a lot of credibility and then following it up with what, what are we missing? What else is there? Um, and so, I mean, I remember being in a meeting over here in San Mateo County with the uh, planning and building officials from across and the community development directors from across all the cities in the county. And here I'm like, we're doing 3D print construction. I'm pretty sure most of them laughed. Then I showed them a picture of our demo unit. They're like, okay, well, at least it's pretty. And then I dove into code. I talked about, and this is what we're, how we're meeting Title 24. This is how we're meeting the building code. This is how we're, the testing that we've already done. This is the additional testing we will be doing before we deploy. This is who we're working with, with UL, with ICC, working through the factory built housing program. And by the end, they're like, awesome. When are you gonna be able to build them in our community? And it's, it's really is that kind of doing the, putting in the work to understand your audience and to, to know their pain points and really be able to speak to them and meet them where they are. So that rather than expecting them that you're going to be able to drag them to where you are because that rarely happens particularly not with public officials no i appreciate that un unintended consequences are thinking through that because we actually had another guest that you know we asked like when you're developing a, a new piece of technology how do you have a positive social impact and that was his mm -hmm. response was you got to make sure you're thinking about those unintended consequences because his example was something like you know electric cars like this is all great but what happens if in 10 years we have all these batteries laying around that we got to figure out what to do with you know different things that we need to think right. about or, or the upstream supply chain in terms of rare earth minerals oh yeah absolutely yeah. um no i you know jackson mentioned like how one i watched a lot of those videos too and i was kind of starstruck i thought it was really cool to to watch and and it from what it seemed like is you know they bring it on site uh and 
I think I was hearing that like from an earthquake perspective, they're mounted to the concrete. Is that correct? Like there's plates that they're mounted to that kind of. Yeah. So, from... so yeah. So the printer is not brought to site. The, the modules and the panels. Are yeah. The modules. Yeah, so they're, the modules. yeah, they're, they're then affixed to a permanent foundation because they're considered modular housing, not manufactured. And so that's, that's a, a small difference linguistically, but huge difference code wise. Uh, so what it means is that our units are actually built to the California building code. And when we deploy them to other states, they meet or exceed the local, the building codes for those states as well, versus what manufactured housing, which is what's also been known colloquially as mobile homes. Those are built to the housing urban development code, uh, which hasn't been updated since like 1996. And they're required to have a steel chassis and wheels. Um, you can put them onto a permanent foundation, again, converted to a to a properly, uh, properly permitted structure, but it's a it's a less stringent code that's not as energy efficient and um, from a seismic standpoint, isn't gonna be as, as good. And so for us here, being here in California, we've not only done extensive modeling to demonstrate code compliance on the seismic, we've actually with our new panel system, thrown it on a shake table, shook, uh, shook it up to over a 9.0 with basically, I think there was maybe a little damage on one like, one part of a panel, but nothing structural, nothing, no, no major damage. Uh, so very, yeah, so very excited for how they're going to perform uh, in an earthquake. And that's one of the, again, one of the benefits of having 3D printed material is that you can do things like that pretty easily. Yeah, you know, it's cool. You know, you mentioned there's a several month lead time or a month lead time. How much of that is in the shop versus on site? I noticed when I was watching those videos, they talk a little bit about the on-site mainly is like placing and then utility hookup mm -hmm. and then obviously furnishing. Kind of what does that timing look like? Yeah, so for the mods, like the one you see behind me, so while we're, so we can build one of these in like a week and a half. So basically this is, this is the unit behind me is being built while we're built, while we're laying the foundation and that's carrying. And so, and, and while the site work trenching, all of that's being done, then it can get, these can get placed in half a day. Like even the two unit, two module ones, like you see behind me, can get placed, atta uh, attached to the foundation, attached to each other, sealed, and then good to go. And then you've got another week of site work, cleanup, furnishing, that sort of things. With the new panel system, it's a little more involved because we're, uh, again, we're not just dropping it in at fully finished. We're actually standing it up and assembling it on site rather than in the factory. So that's that's what takes the uh, bit of longer time. But again, we can be producing in the majority of the, the uh, panels and everything in the facility while the foundation and other works, site works being done. So a lot of, that's one of the advantages of prefabrication that we're just accelerating and unlocking with 3D printing and robotics is that ability to, to be doing uh, operations in parallel. I want to pivot to why this is going to help um, the housing crisis. So I did a lot of work in downtown Austin and, you know, living in Austin, first of all, amazing city. I love it so much. I miss it. But anyways, with all of that bats. being said, yeah, bats, absolutely. <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of people there who are chronically homeless and they don't have a place to go. And it's really expensive to live in Austin. So they pretty much don't have a chance to really live there. <laughs> same here. In the, same with the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, so what... Um, you know, what can construction like this do to help with the housing crisis that we have going on throughout the country? Yeah. So one of the big things, and we've spoken to is that we don't, we simply just don't have enough people to build all the housing we need, period. doesn't matter which market segment we're talking about. And so that's one of the big areas that 3D printing, I think really can, can help is because it eliminates the need for because you're able to produce a lot more units despite that lack of labor. And so it gives us a pathway to producing more units, even if we continue to lose people from the industry. But again, it's our hope we'll actually attract more people into the industry uh, through the use of this technology. Additionally, you've got some companies like uh, Icon, speaking of Austin, uh, who have focused specifically on supportive and low-income housing. Um, and we, they're doing some great stuff, partnering with New Story otherwise, and others. For us, we because our whole, whole approach has been to eventually be completely design product and market agnostic, We've actually taken this different approach. We've been focusing on the missing middle. So your teachers, your nurses, your firefighters, people who serve communities, but more and more can't afford to live in them, particularly in high cost areas like Austin, like the Bay. Um, and that's where things like accessory dwelling units and these kind of smaller right-sized homes really make sense and really become very important. As we scale and as we grow, our, our goal is to be able to serve, again, any market segment. And, and so you've got some key advantages there. 
One is the speed and the ability to deploy units despite the lack of labor. Um, and so that, that ability to unlock the per person productivity, but also to, as at scale. And if you design them right, you can, you can hit a bunch of different price points. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're kind of following the Tesla path. So we've, we've got the, our mighty mods, which are, are these ADUs that were basically our, our roadster because they were a, tra a traditional steel frame box with a 3D printed curve. Now this, uh, the Mighty House product line in a lot of ways is kind of our a Model S. It, it's an award-winning design. Um, it actually has literally won multiple architectural awards already. Uh, it was designed by EYRC Architects out of Los Angeles, top 50 global uh, modern uh, architecture firm. Am absolutely amazing. Engineering was done by Burl Happel, one of the world's leading uh, engineering firms with a very, very strong focus on sustainability. And so frankly, that's, are those initial deployments are gonna be a bit higher end. Um, but then with this new multi-story, I can't say too much because we haven't fully announced at the partnership yet, but we're working with one of the top uh, production home designers in the country. And so there we're targeting a, a price point that's allows for mass appeal, not just in California, but really across the world. And so, or, or, well, at least across the United States. Um, and so that's really about how do we design that from the beginning to meet the price points of the of the different markets that we're trying to serve with it, um, and then as and then as we scale, we can continue to figure out ways to bring those price points down, continue to improve the sustainability, really, to continue to improve the social impact. And so, at the end of the day, we need housing, full stop. Um, and one of the interesting things to note is that in California, at least, it's more expensive to build affordable housing than it is market rate. Uh, I think a single unit of affordable housing in San Francisco is a million dollars a unit. $750,000 a unit across the Bay Area and uh, around $500,000 to $600,000 a unit for the state of California. So there's, there's some, some interesting economics at play also in, the, in, the, in that market, but that's why we're looking forward to be able to serve it properly with multifamily and be able to do density and be able to serve urban, inf urban and suburban info projects there. Um, but it also is also that idea that if we have enough housing across the board, it's gonna bring down rents across the board. And so it's about serving, providing housing across market segments, not just focusing all on, all on capital A affordable housing that's specifically subsidized, but really figuring out, okay, where is there, is there need? I mean, because the missing middle, there's huge need, but they don't qualify for affordable housing. They don't qualify for those subsidies. And so it's really about identifying, well, where is there need and who, where is it that need not being met? Um, because obviously, again, amazing people doing amazing work in the affordable housing space, but that's not the only housing we need. And so for us, it's about, it was about finding that, that niche that still that wasn't being served, focusing on that and serving that, and then be able to expand from there upward, up market and down market to really meet all the housing needs of various communities. Makes sense. I mean, if you increase the supply in the long term, it has to drive the price down. Right, right now, I mean, I, I know my own house is probably fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 more than I know it actually is worth but I could probably sell it for that much more just because there's high demand. So yeah. it makes a lot of sense as we kind of start to wrap up, you know, what are some big things you guys are without getting all the details? Like, what are you all looking towards? I mean, I know right now you're kind of in California. Are you looking to expand across the U S like, what are some, we, we are, so we, we, we've shipped uh, one unit to uh, Florida already. Um, and our, cause our, and cause our vision, our expansion plans, it doesn't make sense to ship to just be in California and then ship, across the country, across the world. Like that's like export, like you're exporting some of the most expensive construction costs in, in history. So that just- There goes your sense. embodied carbon. <laughs> exactly, well, not to mention the, the, the sustainability implications. So our vision has always been to have a distributed network of facilities around the country and around the world where we have the right partners who, who have the experience with the local regulatory environment, understand the local markets and really allow us to focus on the part that we do well 3D printing, the materials, the technology. And so that only means that not only are we gonna be able to deploy these facilities into existing warehouse space in areas where there's high demand, it means we also get to create jobs for those markets and make sure that we're taking advantage of the local economics of those markets. And so to that end, we've got some conversations ongoing um, that hopefully will lead to uh, our first uh, factories with those partners starting in 2023. So very excited to begin uh, quickly expanding outside of California, both across the country and across the world. Um, because again, we got five to 10 years to change everything. And so it's, uh, we, don't, we don't have a lot of time to, to sit back waiting for, for things to happen. It's about going out there and really making them happen. And so if any of your listeners are liking what they're hearing and are um, particularly if they're doing a, deploying units of scale and, and are interested in what we're doing, 
have them visit us at MightyBuildings.com or reach out to us at uh, info at MightyBuildings.com. And we would love to talk to them because we're actively looking for those right partners. Um, because again, it's about how do, we, how do we solve these crises in a way that really works for communities. That's a nice plug, Sam. That's a true professional right there. Um, I know I'm personally interested in these houses because, you know, if it can withstand an uh, earthquake in California, it can certainly withstand my Texas hurricanes. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's that's what's not. We're actually in the process of doing some hurricane impact testing um, to be able to deploy places like Miami-Dade uh, where you can, and I, I'm, I'm bummed I'm not going to get to see that in person because I really am really looking forward to seeing two by fours bounce off our walls. Because um, that's what they do for us. They shoot a two by four yeah. at a couple hundred miles an hour at the wall. And based on our testing, it's probably going to bounce, which I'm, I'm excited for. Oh, man. Yeah. If you get a video of that. Oh, I'll believe me, if we get a video of it, it's going, you'll probably see it on YouTube. On the YouTube. I'll, yeah. I'll be crowing about that. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I really do appreciate you joining us. It's been cool to hear about kind of what got you get started and your journey and, and what you guys are doing. Because, I mean, especially now, again, we, we all know there's this housing crisis that we're running into. We hear all the time about productivity and construction, and I'm sure there's going to be aspects of what you all are doing that can travel or trickle into the commercial space. You know, oh yeah, eventually, so, totally. I, there no reason we couldn't be doing commercial buildings and infrastructure in the future. It's really, but as a startup, it's really important to, to have focus. And, and also housing is a giant lever point for so many big intractable problems that if we can really figure out how to do, do housing right, uh, we can start really addressing all the, some of these other giant problems through housing, but then also by creating ancillary benefits and, and kind of cascading impacts from that. So, so that's another reason why we chose housing as the first spot. But yeah, long-term, I, I fully anticipate you'll be seeing Mighty, Mighty Products and commercial and other uh, use cases uh, down the road. Well, Sam, it's been fun. We appreciate you joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2021.